Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. How did he, how did he look? Like we're doomed. Maybe we are. I've just informed the president. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City legally? The world will never be the same. That's an alien doing jumpy jacks. That's an alien in a top hat. What's out there? The films of Wes Anderson have always had a fanciful quality, but with his latest, Asteroid City, the director approaches the truly fantastic. The 50s set film flirts with science fiction and features another huge ensemble, including Anderson first-timers Tom Hanks and Steve Carell. Our review, plus thoughts on the acclaimed new Past Lives. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I suppose unless, Josh, you're one of those people who appreciates the more contentious shows, it's always a good thing when we get to talk about not just one movie, but two movies that we both really like. These are my favorite shows to do. I don't know about you. And yeah, we have been on a run lately with the likes of Across the Spider-Verse, You Hurt My Feelings, and the two we're going to get to today. One of those two, Celine Song's Past Lives, which was rapturously received at Sundance back in January. It's now one of the best-reviewed films of the year. We will try to add to that chorus a bit later in the show. And we're going to discuss Wes Anderson's new one, Asteroid City. You're not here. We're not there. The car exploded. Come get the girls. I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not the chauffeur. I'm the grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Junior stargazers and space cadets. Each year we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Holy Toledo, that's Mitch Campbell. You're very good in the one about the tramp in the brothel who Thank gets you. amnesia and Thank becomes you. a pediatrician. You were very awesome. Actually, maybe my favorite character ever. I don't know why nobody else liked it. Oh. 
Let's start this discussion by doing what every character, and we meet a lot of them, is trying to do in Asteroid City. Get our bearings. Wes Anderson's latest is a play within a play that's also a TV show? Okay, that probably wasn't helpful. Let's try this. Actress Scarlett Johansson portrays fictional actress Midge Campbell, who comes out west to Asteroid City with her junior stargazing star daughter. Midge Campbell? Well, she's played by an actress from back east named Mercedes Ford. So, as Anderson himself has explained, you're ultimately seeing an actress playing an actress playing an actress. Now that we've got that all cleared up, truthfully, I've almost surely oversold how confusing the mid-50s set Asteroid City is, while totally underselling just how dense it is. Post-war America and the fractured men who return from battle, the Mythic West, the Space Race, Broadway, and the Actors Studio, and Playhouse 90, not to mention direct references to the cinema of Steven Spielberg. It's as if Anderson created Asteroid City, the movie, and the place, to intermingle all of his greatest inspirations and influences. Anderson said, When I started wanting to make movies, this period was the center of everything. We were watching The Godfather and Taxi Driver and Brian De Palma, but maybe even more, Marlon Brando and James Dean, Montgomery Clift and Elia Kazan. The emotion of this period of movies and their relationship to the stage. I want to get to a question for you, Josh, that may seem a little silly as I've just put forth why the play-within-a-play approach was always at the core of this project. And this certainly isn't new territory, as we could run through a litany of similar framing devices and meta-layers in Anderson's films. But I hope that it will provoke us to really consider what the director is up to here and how successfully he achieves it. Imagine that the whole movie Asteroid City is comprised only of the events that we see take place within Asteroid City. Events that already comprise the majority of the movie's runtime. Johansson's Midge and her flirtations and existential musings with Jason Schwartzman's Augie Steenbeck, a war photographer, now widower, struggling to break the news of his wife's death to his four children, Steve Carell's industrious motel manager, Tilda Swinton's astronomer, Dr. Hickenlooper, Jeffrey Wright's General Griff, etc. Instead of these characters stemming from the mind of Edward Norton's playwright Conrad Earp, they come only from the mind of Anderson. No TV sound stages with Brian Cranston playing the host. No black and white acting class interactions. Just all of these a little bit lost souls coming together in the desert, forced to stay together a little longer than planned, following a close encounter of the third kind. And I don't mean here, imagine an alternative version of the film Asteroid City. I'm saying this is the only version we'd ever be aware of. I think there's a pretty good chance that the two of us, and many other Anderson appreciators, would have been satisfied with that hermetically sealed-off presentation of Asteroid City. What would we have lost, though? Great question. One that I was circling around as those layers began to unfold. And I'm glad you noted that you probably are making it sound more complicated than it is, because that's true. And I don't want this to scare off anyone, particularly people who thought the French Dispatch was a little too dense for them. Uh, this, to me, is much simpler than that in terms of its construction. But you're not incorrect to lay out all those layers. They are there. The one you just asked me about, I'll be honest, we're four or five days from seeing Asteroid City. That's the one I'm still immersed in. I'm, I'm immersed in that 80% screen time set in the title town story, the characters there, what happens there, what that might mean. 
I'm going to need another viewing or at least a couple more days until I start digging deeper than that. Uh, I think that's partly because, to your point, I was satisfied with what I got there. I have, as much as I've loved his more recent films that have added on the layers to the cake, so that these are layer cake movies, which really started, I think, in earnest with Grand Budapest, those, again, have loved them all. Huge fan. But I connect more strongly with the more straightforward narratives that he did previously. And so that's how I've responded to this one as well. I'm not trying to ignore those other layers. I'm going to have to get to them a little later. And my reasoning is I don't want to rush through it. I want to enjoy what is taking Mm -hmm. place in Asteroid City because, again, as you said, that could be a movie of its own. What movie do I think that is? We'll get to that. But I want to hear your response to that question uh, first before we get there. I would say that, and you've hinted at this, this could very much be a movie entirely about the acting experience, what it means to be an actor, the art of acting, how audiences receive acting. Uh, That may be enough for what Asteroid City is about. I think it's in that next layer that I've yet to really dig into. Um, But I think that's why it's there. It sounds to me, I'm unfamiliar with a lot of the background information you shared. Maybe that was the genesis of this project many years ago, perhaps. And I think there's a lot of richness there. There are some fantastic performances here, performances within performances within performances, as you said, but just on the surface of a single character performance, I think Schwartzman and Johansson are excellent in particular. That may be all this movie needs to be about. That's the layer I've yet to get to. But how are you feeling? Is that the layer this movie needed for you to like it as much as I'm hoping you did? Yeah, I think I probably did appreciate it even more because of that ambition, because of that audacity. Would have been fine, I'm sure, with that more stripped down version of this film. And I'm going to say it's probably a little silly to suggest that making a movie smaller would make the movie seem smaller. <laughs> yeah, that that's what would have happened, I think, though. I think it would have been satisfying without being as rewarding. And look, every good movie should get better with repeat viewings. Definitely the case with Anderson's films, which are very rich. Asteroid City, though, is one that almost demands, I think, that you go back and unpack all of its references and all the ways it kind of folds in on itself. And and not just to get the references, though I would like to do that. I mean, we can get as minute even as the fact that that character I mentioned, Scarlett Johansson, one of her characters in this film is named Mercedes Ford. You know, it's as if as if this woman has probably taken a stage name where she's grabbed like this more exotic foreign car and they've merged it with, you know, the basic American car for it's playing with all these myths and ideas, everything, even Hickenlooper is a reference. Of course, I don't think there's anything in this film. Of course, there's nothing by accident, but it's one of those films where it really does feel as if every detail matters and watching it again or multiple times after that isn't just to sort of, pick up on the trivia of it to get all those references, but to really see how all of those references contribute to the narrative and the ideas. And yes, the emotions that, that Anderson I think is exploring here. And there were really two moments that unlocked it for me. And we were talking about this a little bit afterwards. Think even the next day, you said that there were some lines that you really wish maybe you had taken better notes on or that you could reference. I'd like to see if we have any overlap here. The two that unlocked it for me 
One is a moment, I think it's Maya Hawk is a teacher who's got a group of young students, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, 10 years old on a field trip. They've come to Asteroid City to learn about space. And this is one of her scenes where she's trying to teach them the morning after this alien sighting. Now, I hadn't actually watched the trailer for Asteroid City before seeing the movie. Yeah, me either. So I kind of thought, I kind of thought, you know, even though it's not like it feels like a gigantic spoiler, I wouldn't have expected that that was something they <laughs> revealed in the trailer, but it's right there. So it's not like the whole movie hinges. It does kind of thematically, but it's not as if the movie in terms of the plot hinges on this moment, not giving anything away. They have an alien sighting. It is completely by surprise. They have no expectation of this. Before this moment, they believe they're alone in the universe. And you can see how sort of upset she is. Not upset like angry, more just she's clearly been rocked. Her world has been rocked by this. And now she's trying to She's trying to teach students. Well, it, if, it's changed her lesson plan, Adam. That's, you should know this as, as a teacher now. I mean, I there's know. nothing worse. And, and it's changed so much more than that. It's changed <laughs> the plan for all of their lives in a way, right? So she says, some of our information about the solar system may no longer be completely accurate. <laughs> anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system, as far as we know. And one of the kids, Billy, raises his hand and Billy says, Except now there's an alien. <laughs> and, and you really do, you sense, I love the performance, you sense her hesitancy and the doubt that's creeping in as she's saying those words. Like the way she says, as far as we know. As far as we know, there's still nine planets in the solar system. And it just raises for me this idea that I think this movie is really exploring among so many other ideas and questions, which is what do we cling to as truths? Universal, foundational truths? How do we navigate this experience, this experience of life without a set of rules? 12 hours ago, they thought they understood the rules. They thought they understood what kind of universe they lived in. Now they realize they don't. Everything is up for grabs. And that that chaos, that uncertainty is, is disconcerting. And I think that even ties back, Josh, to the central storyline of this film, which is surrounding grief. These Steenbeck kids, there's a life with a mother, and there's a life now without. They're just now coming to terms with it. They just discover it. It just gets thrown, thrust onto them, and they have to reckon with it. So there's life before and after, just like there's before and after life with the alien. What are you, what are you going to be tethered to? Which then gets to the second moment. And I can't remember the line. Maybe you do. But I know a character says it. I don't remember the exact context, Stephen. I wish I had better notes here. Someone says something to the effect that you just have to keep telling the story. And for all of these artists, including Anderson himself, the sense for me is that the only way you can deal with all that chaos and uncertainty is to just keep telling the story. <laughs> Are you ever going to find the meaning of it all? Are you going to find the answers? No, you just keep telling the story. And that story involves characters. The stories involve people. All you can do is keep taking some comfort and solace in each other. Yeah, that's one of the lines. It absolutely is. And it's so funny because it comes at a point where you are starting to feel overwhelmed a little bit. 
about what this all might mean. Not overwhelmed by the style. I, you know, I couldn't get enough of that, the filmmaking, those mm-hmm. sorts of things or the performances, but starting to think, okay, this has been fun, but what are we doing here? And what happens? This is in the TV documentary you mentioned, which is chronicling the production of the play that is the story proper. And Schwartzman, who is the actor at this point, not the father in Asteroid City, but the actor playing him, asks Adrian Brody as the play's director, doesn't even ask him. He just kind of says in exasperation, I still don't understand the play. And it's just, it just hit me because I was right there with him. It was like exactly where I was. Mm -hmm. And then Brody's director is the one who says, you had it. Just keep telling the story. That was his direction. I love your reading. I love this idea of, um, you know, being disconcerted by events and wondering what truths can we cling to. I think that absolutely fits. I had a little different response to the alien encounter, I think, and then a a reading that worked backwards for the film. I almost found that for the characters to be, it's the Anderson epiphany, right? And we've gotten these in almost every one of his movies where a character suddenly it's Max Fisher flying the kite. It's Steve Zissou underwater encountering the Jaguar shark. I think I'm going to lose my cred if I got that wrong. You know, these epiphanies, you're right. They often come in the, you know, the, the final 20 minutes of, of his films. What's so interesting here and, and why you're right that it's not necessarily a spoiler, though I did not know it going in as well. The alien appearance it's about the midway point, it feels like. Yeah. And so it is an epiphany that turns a little differently than previous ones for me. And I'm going to back all the way up and then say that I found Asteroid City. My takeaway was this is maybe his darkest film, maybe his bleakest film. And I think it's capturing a feeling right now that, um, for me at least, is very appropriate. This movie, Adam, I think maybe because of the atomic setting, it had me thinking about the doomsday clock. Mm -hmm. And this is not something I really think about very much, but I actually thought, I'm going to go see what's, what's the doomsday clock saying right now. And this is that, you know, it's kind of a pseudoscientific thing that's supposed to measure how close we are to destroying ourselves, right? It's at its worst right now. And I thought that fits. That makes sense to me. Um, Just how kind of I've been feeling when you talk to like younger people, how they talk about their future. It's like, yeah, this tracks that the doomsday clock is saying things are pretty dire. And then I'm thinking about this movie, which is set decades later, but sort of a similar time, right? We've had a pandemic. We've had American insurrection. Those are unique, but Russian aggression, um, environmental degradation that we have, um, now, but you think also about the atomic testing element and what that meant when it was first dawning upon humanity's consciousness in the 50s. The extreme existential angst of 1955, I have to Mm -hmm. imagine, was similar to what we are experiencing now as the doomsday clock attests. And so I think this movie is wrestling with all of that and making it Mm -hmm. personal, to your point, Um, not only in the Schwartzman character's family wrestling with the mother and wife's death, but Midge's character is performing. She's rehearsing this um, suicidal scene in her next movie, and she is giving it such pathos that you really worry for her as a character, not as an actress playing that part, but as a character. This is also a common theme in Anderson's films considering suicide. And it's darker for me because it just feels both personal and bigger. It really does feel as if the world is on the verge of crumbling. There's another line that I wrote down. Mm -hmm. 
um, we're, we're doomed or something like that. And, and someone says in response, maybe we are, um, wondering, it feels like we're doomed is something like that. Maybe we are. Um, and I think there's stylistic touches that support this reading. Think about that highway ramp in the middle of town that goes to nowhere. It's just like very funny, but also kind of an unsettling joke. The atomic testing constantly going on in the background. How about the police chase that interrupts every My favorite gag? It's so funny in the film, right? It's like police car chasing a hot rod down Main Street, screaming. They're shooting at at each other. It's funny. It's another one of the Roadrunner cartoon elements. But it's also deeply distressing in a way like your life is going to be interrupted by this any moment. There's nothing you can do. You're in the gunfire. Um, Why do so many characters carry guns with no explanation in this movie, Adam? Tom Hanks, father-in-law, he doesn't need a gun. Steve Carell's motel keeper, he doesn't need a gun. And they're just kind of in their holes, in their belts. This is a movie that's deeply disquieting to me, constantly reminding me of that. And then the alien comes. And for me, it was almost as if it opened things up for these characters. It, you know what I thought about? We've talked many times about how Tarkovsky's mirror has, has affected our viewing of every movie since. The alien for me was a little bit like the wind in Mirror, where inexplainable, um, disturbing in a way, unsettling, yet somehow also maybe a little bit comforting that, okay, things feel out of our control but maybe that's because we're not in control and there's something else out there we don't understand. And there's something comforting about that. And the reason I turn to that is because there are very subtle changes for some of these characters after that mm-hmm. point um, that I won't get into now. Cause I've talked long enough, but did find the movie for me moving a little bit away from that, that despair and, and unease that it otherwise was really steeped in for me almost more than any of the, of his other films. Yeah. I think we, saw the film the same way. We're thinking about it very much the same way. Some of our word choices might be slightly different. You mentioned bleak and that it might be his bleakest or his darkest. Yes, those elements are there. That's what's grounding everything and what the rest of the film is riffing on and responding to. But as I said, really following up that mantra of just keep telling the story, it feels to me his his most hopeful in some ways. And just to mention about Hanks real quick, I like that character touch because it it seemed to me one where because of the way he carried himself and he has a very kind of stern demeanor and that gun obviously was an indicator as well. It made me think this guy has to be a military guy. Mm. He's someone who probably comes from that world, the military world. Now he's trying to domesticate back into regular life and that's one of those barriers that he can't quite break. That's just now who he is, you know? And I think this movie is filled with those kinds of dichotomies, including the types of dichotomies that surround what you're expressing or this conflict of the film, the hopefulness versus the bleakness, the sort of fatalism of it. It's all there. I think I think that is what he's really exploring. And it does feel to me that that time, you're right, that time in the 50s that he's tapping into, it must have felt like that every day for people, for a lot of Americans, but especially people maybe living in some of these these towns around places like the, you know, real asteroid cities where bombs are being tested. But even then on the East Coast, that's another dichotomy at play here. The East Coast and the actors, and it's all very cerebral, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get inside these characters and understand them. But then we've got the West 
And everything about the mythicness of that is in opposition to what we think of as the East. This movie is is bridging those things. And then we get the dichotomies in terms of the color and black and white. Yep. The aspect ratios that switch here in this film. And and I'll I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit more. But that for me is really why you can't separate or I don't think you get a quote unquote better film if you separated out all the Asteroid City story stuff because it's so tied to all the other stories that we get and all the other storytellers we see. Without the dichotomies, the movie simply isn't as rich. So that actor's studio stuff, for example, I really feel like, Josh, if you if you know anything about that group at all and what some of those actors, and that includes people like Marilyn Monroe, even, mm-hmm. right, who's part of the actor's studio, lots of other famous people whose films that Anderson grew up on and that, you know, we're all familiar with. There was a sense by doing this work, the work of being an actor. And this is just my sense of it, too, from what I've I've gleaned from movies and reading is that they were they were unlocking the mysteries of the universe, too. They were or at least the mysteries of of humanity trying to deeply understand what makes us all tick and then translate that to the screen to to put that in a box and make people see themselves reflected in that and better understand where they stand in the universe by by living through it through these characters. Now, we can sit here and say, well, that's maybe way too grandiose a notion, but that's what those students were in those classrooms hoping to learn. They were trying to unlock those things. And I imagine that someone from the outside, someone in middle America hearing about the actors and the actor's studio and picking up these little things – they even had a sense that I don't understand what's going on in those classrooms. Sure. I don't, I don't know what they think they're doing, but that's not that different than the astronomers trying to make sense of the universe. Like there was this, this time where all of these things were converging. You're starting to be able to access the universe through technology and actually going out into space. That's making you think about your world differently. And now people are taking things like acting and they're exploring the mind in a way that is ostensibly deeper than what had ever been done before. Again, it comes back to this idea of of mysteries, too. And so when you look at Asteroid City, when you think about all that, and then you look at Asteroid City, the movie, but also the place, just the place itself within the movie, it, it for me, takes on another layer of poignancy. And I'm going to use a word here in a moment that you already said. And you don't just appreciate the visual aesthetics of it which I'm with you. I could have just watched I could have just watched people move about yes. that town for eight more The production hours, right? design as well is just incredible. Yes. But these locations when you think about Anderson and his work, you've already referenced some of these films. Those spaces always have so much meaning to Anderson's characters, right? Rushmore, the school, the Tenenbaum house, the the boat in the life aquatic, the Grand Budapest hotel. But these places exist within the world. They can't actually be completely sealed off from the world as much as the characters maybe want them to be. The outside world always encroaches. And the difference here, I think, or one difference I thought of is that Asteroid City is what it is only because of the outside world encroaching. Like, it's not actually really a town unto itself. Almost nobody actually lives there. The only people we meet, for the most part, we meet all the people who who come there for some other 
reason. And every edifice we see in Asteroid City is artifice. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is, and I know this again will sound a little silly, but this is where the movie folds in on itself. The whole thing is like a movie set. Yeah. Not one piece of construction or writing on the walls or on a sign or a set of stairs or whatever. Not one of those things wasn't something that was created by a maker, created by Wes Anderson. Even the mesas in the background, which are delightfully pink, like those are clearly, clearly fake. (laughs) Exactly. So when I talk about poignancy and I talk about what I imagine to be personal, even though I'm not suggesting I know anything about Wes Anderson's own life or things he might be dealing with right now in his life, but I got the sense watching it that one of the things he wanted to explore on screen and deal with is the idea that the more uncertain we are, the more life seems to unravel or be unraveling around us, the more control we naturally try to exert over it and reassert ourselves. And so this movie is, it's not just about that push pull, like it embodies it. It embodies it literally in every frame where you have a filmmaker. They always say that about Anderson, his detractors say it to a fault that, that it's, it's all too controlled. It's all too intricately manicured, whatever. This is one of those films where it both seems to me he's taken it to yet another level of being that orchestrated and designed. Because as I said, there literally isn't a thing you see that that not only do you know Wes Anderson imagine, I almost figure he's the one who wrote those things. He probably got out the paintbrush and actually wrote the things like oil change and, you know, pancakes, whatever, four for a dollar, whatever it is. That's the sense you get watching it. It's as if he himself, like the characters, are trying to exert that that control, have have complete dominance and dominion over this space. And then the alien comes in and takes all that control away, which is, and I'm pretty sure I won't describe it in detail because I want people to experience it and be surprised. I think stop motion animation is involved. Let's just say I I like was 120% in when I saw how they handled the alien. It's just wonderful. I love what you said about the actor studio and the seriousness of the project at work there Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to wrestle with this anxiety and angst and unease and using it not just to put on a performance, but to understand more about the human psyche. I think that's absolutely right. It helps me to connect it with the, you know, the story proper that we see. And it's also gives us a chance to talk more about these performances, which everyone here is wonderful. I think every small bit part is absolutely precisely doing what it needs to be using that particular actor's persona and talents. But I really think Schwartzman and Johansson are holding this thing together on an emotional level. Hers is almost a supporting turn. I don't even know if you would consider his a lead turn, but she definitely gets less screen time. But I think she's kind of the central focus. And the way she, that vacant stare she holds, which suggests someone very lost. And this is whether she's looking at a character or looking directly at the camera, someone who's incredibly lost in the ways we've described, possibly despair, but also it just pierces right through you. You took a picture of me. Uh Uh-huh. Why? I'm a photographer. 
You didn't ask permission. I never ask permission. Why not? Because I work in trenches, battlefields, and combat zones. Really? Uh-huh. You mean you're a war photographer? Mostly. Sometimes I cover sporting events. My name is Augie Steenbeck. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that? That picture? Hmm. Well, if it's any good, I guess I'll try to sell it to a magazine, now that you mention it. Midge Campbell, eating a waffle. Schwartzman, you know, she's minimalist and so is he as Augie, I should say. Not as the actor playing Augie, but as Augie. Almost like speaking without separating his teeth in many ways. And there's a great joke about that, which I won't spoil. I think it's in the trailer too, though, unfortunately. Um, and he, yeah, I don't think it's I've one s- of the best lines. It's so good. And I don't think I've seen him. I haven't seen everything he's done, but something as clenched as this is. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that different side of him. Um, and he's also good as the insecure actor playing Augie as well, as we've already touched on gets another one of the great lines in that part. So they're both, they're both just, you know, top of their games here, I think. Yeah, I think they are both very good. And I have always appreciated Schwartzman, especially in, in Anderson's films. I will only say that you're right. They're giving performances that are in a very similar register and show similar restraint and are similarly kind of vacant at times or a little bit detached. And I would I would say that Schwartzman's performance is incredible if it wasn't for the fact that he was playing off Johansson. And I think that Johansson just exhibits something with that character. For all the ways they're very similar, there is something, to use your word, more more piercing, a little bit more haunting, for a sure. little bit more mysterious. There's, there is a, a well of mystery to her character that Schwartzman's character doesn't quite put off. And and I, I don't know if that's because of the way they're written. I don't know if it's because of the direction and what Anderson wanted, or it's something that's lacking in Schwartzman's performance, or it's just something that's so there in Johansson's performance. Because I think she's incredible. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if I had to rank them, she's, she's giving uh, a richer performance, uh, even though the, it's a character with a little less screen time. Yeah, I do want to mention as we're talking about the layers and storytelling and following that idea of telling the story, things like all of these devices, sometimes literal or physical devices like the camera. I mean, Augie's a war photographer, so you see him always bringing the camera up to his eye. It's almost like it's his protection, you know, that he has He has his art. He has this, this camera that, that allows him to get a little bit of space and see the world the way that he wants to see it. But we also get these these frames in a lot of different ways. It's not just the frame of the camera, and that frame is sometimes the proscenium of a stage or a television, or it's the movie, the widescreen that we're seeing. All of those things are there. But Josh, even the way he shoots Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman, as they spend a good chunk of the movie talking to each other from their little bungalows, yeah. a window... And they have some space in between them. And when you look directly at them, when the camera shows them head on, it's like they're within another frame. Of course they are, a window. And that window is almost like the aspect ratio. It's the squarer, right? classic style aspect ratio, which we sometimes get in other 
universes within this movie. But then when Anderson shoots the desert space between them so that you see them on each side of the frame, it creates a new widescreen frame. Like their faces and their windows create yet another screen within the screen. I, I started to almost feel like, am I going crazy here? I'm seeing I'm seeing rectangles and squares everywhere I look, but that's that's to me to the film's credit yes. that that I started to to experience all that. Yeah, I think it's it's emphasizing their separation, um them feeling boxed in by their own individual mm-hmm. identity or individual angst and anxieties that are there are shared anxieties in this movie and there are very individual anxieties and it makes space for both. It frames both appropriately as yes. when we see you know the the chain link fence around the government facility that that mm-hmm. kind of is is oddly designed so it's just going straight deep into the screen then back all the way showing how wide it is and there's also i think an anderson formal first i would have to go again frame by frame through all his films to make sure i think we get adam a swish pan within a split frame so it's when two characters are ones on each side, right, of the screen separated. They're not just standing mm-hmm. next to each other. And then that police chase goes by, and I forget which character. And one of them turns to look at the police car, and the camera pans quickly with them. You're right. I mean, I, he's gonna he's gonna drive himself insane at some point if he keeps layering things like this. I just hope I just hope I can keep up with him. Well, you know what put me in the headspace, and we'll we'll go out on this. I'm going to invoke your beloved Life Aquatic. The opening of this film is a shot. I may not be getting it exactly right, but as I recall it, it's a shot of it's Brian Cranston talking as the host of the TV show, and the first image we see is him, but through the glass of the TV booth. Mm-hmm. So there's there's people working on the TV show who are in the very foreground the glass that they're looking through and then Cranston on the stage. So again, we've got, we've got all these layers here. We've got the stage itself that he's on. We've got the studio glass, but it made me think immediately of the submarine shot from Steve Zissou Hmm. that, that even that shot, Josh, when you think about it, the way he frames that, that moment with the Jaguar shark, that group of people sitting in those seats in the submarine looking out through that wide screen it's like they're at a movie theater mm-hmm. it's like they're it's like they're watching this this all unfold in front of them and it works for me on the level that it's almost as if anderson can only see the world through <laughs> through frames, through these types of boxes. And it's so so he layers his film with his characters doing the same. One of the best shots in his filmography, that one from Zissou, for sure. Asteroid City is in theaters everywhere now. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, yeah, Anderson haters, bring it. Tell us how much you hated it. <laughs> do we, do we, we'll need, talk about do we it. really need to bother? <laughs> yeah, Josh at LarsonOnFilm.com. Oh. Just email him. No, no. Feedback at filmspotting.net Thanks. is where you can email us. And hey, you know, I say that. I wonder if we'll get a classic Tasha Robinson contrarian take on the next picture show. Oh, it's very because possible. Their very next pairing is Asteroid City with Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. And I alluded to that last week on our show. Now that we've had this 30 minute plus discussion, I'm guessing people can see yeah. some of the connections and why 
why they would do that. I had a vague sense of what you meant, but not having watched the trailer, the whole layer of the actors and the theatrical mm-hmm. element, and clearly, clearly that's where they're going. We do hope you'll check out the next picture show, Looking at Cinema's Present via its past. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. Nazis, banter, indie theme. Yes, that's the trailer for the fifth Indiana Jones adventure, Dial of Destiny. It opens on the 30th. We just saw it, Josh, and we're going to finally get to review it. The following weekend, we're taking a short summer break. I have to pack up my house. I'm moving down the road a bit. We'll talk about that more on an upcoming show. You, of course, are, are going way down the road. You're going, you're going to another side of the equator, I believe. I was never good at geography. Just really inspired by my rewatch of all the Indiana Jones films and thought, time to get to the Amazon, time to go to Peru. Yeah. And yeah, let me know um, where I can find a good, is it a bull whip? Is that technically the whip that he has? Because um, I, I need so. one. I still need one for the, for the venture. Do you have the fedora? Do you have the hat? No, I don't have that either. Got to do a little shopping. How are you going to Indiana Jones cosplay down on the Amazon without those things? <laughs> I think you need them. I think I need a lot more than those two items to pull it off. Well, you got the stubble. You're that I have. that in nicely. I do have okay. that. Along with that review of Dial of Destiny, we are planning to share our top five Indiana Jones moments, and we'll have poll results. We asked you your favorite Harrison Ford performance. You can still vote in that poll right now at filmspotting.net and leave a comment. We just might read your feedback on the show. Speaking of feedback, if you've got a pick for a favorite Indiana Jones moment, the best scene, your absolute favorite from, well, at least four films, maybe five, if you have seen Dial of Destiny by the time you write in or send us an audio file, we would love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. You do just have to provide your own humming of the Indiana Jones theme. Mm. You're going to have to layer these multi-track. I need some I need some music accompanying your pick is what I'm saying. All right, no cosplay, but time now for some vocal performances, at least with Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, we massacred this scene. Look, where's this going? What do you want me to do? There's sometimes a buggy. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You were recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls for the part. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. That was Monty Montgomery as Cowboy with Justin Thoreau in 2001's Mulholland Drive, written directed, of course, by David Lynch. That massacre was part of our top five LGBTQ plus show a couple of weeks back. 
So why that scene from Mulholland Drive? Andrea Weaver in Lancaster, PA, says film spotting is a safe space, I hope. So I'll be honest and say I kind of hated this movie. <gasps> not because it's bad, but because I felt stupid for not understanding it. Okay. I mean, I can see that with Lynch. I feel that way about Lost Highway. The connection? Sapphic love or obsession. Either way, it's a Pride Month special. Well, as we learned from Asteroid City, just keep telling the story. Don't worry about it if you don't understand it, Andrea. Here's Sienna from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Connections include the death of Kenneth Anger, who, as you mentioned, was a huge influence on Lynch. Mulholland Drive status is one of Lynch's queerest films. Definitely a big, oh, wow, I'm really queer screen moment in my own baby gay phase. The films move up to number eight on the sight and sound pole and arguably also the character's name, the cowboy, serving as a reference to Brokeback Mountain, making both of your lists. P.S. Thank you for the love you gave to my own private Idaho, which was so fundamental to me as a queer person and is still in my top three films of all time. I always love featuring the connections that our listeners find because inevitably they do come up with some that are obvious and sometimes not so obvious. Even if they are obvious, they're usually not the ones we were thinking of. In this case, I actually proposed Mulholland Drive and I was only thinking about the pride connection thinking about, of course, Rita and Betty there and their relationship. But I also love the fact that we both included Brokeback Mountain and talked a lot about gay cowboys in our top five. And of course, that scene features the cowboy. So had that, didn't think at all about the fact that there'd be some Kenneth Anger crossover. You talked about Lynch or mentioned him when you included fireworks in your top five. And then, come on, how did we not think of this at the time? As Sienna points out, Mulholland Drive quite high on that sight and sound list. And we just shared our awards from that marathon. Doing They're our blind there, spots. The connections. Yep. We also got two emails from people pointing out tattoos they have from Mulholland Drive. Now, I only got one picture. We also did get, we also did get someone who did some kind of AI thing where they put my face over the cowboy's face and the world can't see it. The world Thank cannot. You. Thank you for sparing us. Disturbing thing anyone would ever see. But Garrick from Minneapolis has a Silencio tattoo, a quite big Silencio moment from Mulholland Drive with those two faces of, of Betty and Rita. And Mitch Ringenberg from Carmel, Indiana, said his first tattoo featured the, to him, iconic blue box and key from that film. Oh, some some compliments here. He said, I nailed the soft-spoken creepiness of Monty Montgomery's The Cowboy as well. Put that in the- Is that a compliment? Yeah, I was going to say, put that in the qualities you can ably perform, soft-spoken creepiness. <laughs> reach into the hat, pretty brimming, not quite at the game night level of brim, but reach in, pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Roy Rhodes from Temple, Texas. And if Roy is not a cowboy with that yeah. name and living in Texas, get on that. Yeah, we need to see a shot of you, Roy, with a cowboy hat on, maybe some boots and spurs. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. What happened to the cannoli line? Max. You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his cannoli. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. We're going to see the range of one Josh Larson this week Yikes! as we get to our new edition of Massacre Theater. I don't think we need to give any hints. At least one connection to this week's show should come out in the dialogue. And then there is at least 
one more obvious connection. Josh, you've done a lot of accents over the years on the show. I'm not sure you've ever done one quite like this, and it should be in some ways the easiest. It's not like mm. we're talking about someone from a foreign country. This is true. It's more of a, a an American place in a particular period. The, yes. the rate of talking I can probably get. I do know how to talk quickly, but that might be okay. it. We'll see. Yeah, we do have to have some pace to this one. I'm going to start it off. You're going to give me the action. And action. Any more thoughts about who you might marry? Ta- I ain't doing that again. I had two marriages. It just cost the studio a lot of money to bust them up. Well, we had to have those annulled. One was to a minor mob figure. Vince was not minor. And Buddy Flynn was a band leader with a long history of narcotics. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were both louses. Marrying a third louse ain't gonna do me no good. I've offered you some very suitable, clean young men. Pretty boys, saps and swishes. What do you think? If there wasn't a, a good, reliable man, I wouldn't have grabbed him? What about Arn Sezlin? He is the father, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. The marriage doesn't have to last forever, but Deanna... Having a child without a father would present a public relations problem for the studio. The aquatic pictures do very nicely for it. So you go and strap on a fish ass and marry Arnie Seslam. And scene. I'd, I'd like to see you in a fish ass, Josh. Let's see <laughs> if we can arrange some props. Not entirely sure what that means. <laughs> if you know what film we just hurriedly massacred, and you did okay. I think you did okay, I mean, Josh. the best thing I can I'm say impressed. about it is it was a single take. Yeah. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, June 19th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. We just can't get away from storytelling here on this week's Film Spotting, a bit from the trailer for Past Lives, the feature debut from writer-director Celine Song. We have been hearing about this film, Josh, since January, when it premiered at Sundance, to almost universal acclaim. It was then picked up by A24 for distribution. That's usually a good sign. And then in May, it was programmed as part of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. More people we like and trust got to see it and praise it. I will ask you if it managed to live up to all the hype in a second, but we will quickly set up the plot. The clip you heard more or less tells you everything you need to know. 20 years or so after getting separated, when one of them emigrates from Korea to Canada, two former childhood sweethearts reunite. Complicating things? The one that left, Greta Lee's Nora, is happily married to John Majaro's Arthur. The long-lost friend, Hei Sung, is played by Yu Teo. A simple story, Josh. Why all the praise? Oh, well, a lot of reasons. This is delicately and quite beautifully made, um, especially for a feature directorial debut. I think for me, the storytelling is, you know, just an intriguing premise and interestingly handled, inventively spun out as a narrative. Uh, For me, it's these two performances. I, I was just stunned at the sense of connection they could establish between these two characters who are mostly not together. And then what happens when they do come together is this electricity that is, it's like an impossible scenario romance, which we've seen others of those, but I don't think those always capture the combination of regret and romance that are Mm -hmm. all taking place in one scene. And again, it's, 
due to song staging to her decision of when to bring them together and how to bring them together. That's absolutely a part of it, but it's just these two in you and Lee, the way they, I mean, we talked about, you know, who did we like better a little bit, Schwartzman or Johansson in in Asteroid City. And, And I don't want to always pit two leads against each other. But for me, when I think about this movie, Lee is wonderful. I, you're just kind of like crumple inward when I think about how Taeyu looks at her, mm-hmm. how Hesong looks at Nora here when she's looking at him, when she's not looking at him. It is the most, it is the saddest thing I think I've seen on a screen in a long time. Um, and the way he embodies that, this is an actor I'm mostly unfamiliar with. He was in Decision to Leave um, and a, a number of other projects he's been in. But this is the first time I've really um, watched him closely. It's it's stunning what he can encompass without saying much. And then when he does deliver some of these lines written by song, it's it's just like punches you in the gut after you've already kind of like been crumpled. Yeah, it's... A really wonderful performance, you're right, and they both are, but I too, and I just I just saw this late last night and I'm still thinking about it quite a bit. When I think about the film and I think about the moments that are the most kind of subtly devastating, I am thinking about his face. And I think part of that is that, for lack of a better term, there's a little bit of a, a puppy dog to him. He seems to be the one who is holding on to feelings more strongly about her. For sure. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that, including that she has moved on and she's gotten married, but I think it actually fits with their characters too. And I'm not going to ruin the line at all because there's a great revelation between the two characters. And and even saying that makes it seem bigger than it is. No, it's a, it's a profound moment, but it's not a huge plot development or treated like an epiphany because this is a movie that is really about these small interactions and these quiet moments. I want to talk about that a little bit more, but there's there's a realization about the differences between them or the main difference between them. And that's who she is, the one to have some ambition and to want to always be moving forward. And he's the one who wants to stay in the past a little bit more. Well, you read that. You read that in every, every look, every time he looks at her, you sense that in him. And for me, you're right. Delicate's a great word. This is a movie that, that is in that same realm as films by directors like Celine Siama and Koganada, where they are, full of dramatic tension, there is conflict, but the film at no point escalates any of it. And I think it it ends exactly where it should and how it should. But all I could think about, Josh, was, while this is where a lot of films that would be mining similar material, this is where they'd be just beginning. This would be this would be at best the middle of the film and maybe maybe more because those movies would be all about taking those tensions and trying to ratchet them up and create more drama and and ultimately it would probably be more melodramatic and we don't get even a hint of that here in this film. Yeah, I think it ends just perfectly for what it wants to do and the story that it's telling. 
Yeah, it's fascinating to think about, as you're describing his character, you're right, and those qualities that make us both feel drawn to him and remember him, I think there's a braveness to Lee's performance as Nora that she doesn't shy away from making Nora somewhat of the harder character, mm-hmm. the more driven character. Um, and so maybe it's not fair for us to say, well, I like this performance better because really she they're just giving us who these characters need to be. This relationship exactly. would not evolve this way if Nora were less driven less headstrong, less independent. Those are all qualities that are positive qualities of hers. It's why she's able to make her way through this early childhood while well, middle school when her family immigrates experience. It's why she's able to establish this artistic career and move to New York City and have the level of success that she does have. So these are all good qualities. But when we're seeing them strictly through the lens of this relationship, it's tempting to say, Oh man, like if if only she would open up to him a little more. That's kind of what we want, but but again, the trick of this movie is that they're just more learning that where they've ended up is probably where they should be. And perhaps she just comes to recognize that a little sooner than him because of her internal makeup, her psychology. And that's okay, but you do still come away feeling not that they should have gotten together, that he was right, that his pining should have been rewarded. I I don't mean that at all, but it's just more in terms of the character that at least I became a little more attached to. Um, And you can see it in the way, you know, these are separate sections when they do separate again. She's the one who says goodbye and you know, at least in the first two, rather curtly, these are decisive. It's again, part of her character. Like we're separating. That's what I've decided. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. And this is how, and it's just done. And he's kind of left there in, you know, that beautiful shot that she actually returns to of diverging alleyways that Mm -hmm. they separate as kids. We see early on, it's like in the first 10 minutes, that's how Nora knows the path she's going to, and she's going to head up it after saying a quick goodbye. And he is going to linger a bit and look uncertainly at the direction he's going to head away from her. Yeah. And everything you said is true, but part of the magic of this movie in both the performance of Greta Lee and Celine Song's writing and direction is that you never feel as if she's somehow cold. No. <laughs> or that she's no. not she she's not responding to him with as much longing or at least strength of feeling that that he's also showing and they're processing it in different ways Mm -hmm. including she is the one as you said who earlier on because they this is something i didn't get from the from the trailer they actually do reunite earlier in their lives and then where we see a good chunk of the film they're now 12 years beyond that so we see them twice come together but they separate each time yes. for an expanse of time. And you you understand that she's making that decision, but she's also making it and she's making that tough call because of the weight, the weight of this relationship yes. on her and the fact that it it doesn't seem to ever have the potential future that they both want. So you are always feeling both sides uh, of her character and what is, I think you could say, uh, a dilemma, this this dilemma of this this space that is between them. I won't say it's a disappointment because I didn't I didn't hold it against the movie, Josh. But maybe where it it was different than my expectations is I just got the sense from the trailer that it might be even a little bit more 
poetically realized, a little more experimental visually, mm. how it how it sort of danced around in time. And it's it's fairly linear. You know, it starts in the past, it works up to the present. There are these occasional flashes back to who they were and moments they shared together, but it is all beautifully observed. And those flashes to the past are perfectly employed. Yeah. And I also think that that song intrinsically understands and feels exactly when to use and hold on a longer take and let the moment play out in front of us. Utilizing two shots as well versus relying on a lot of cross-cutting or putting them in their own individual frames. We are often looking at these characters together. Now, there's also some moments where there's three characters in this space, but the camera is only showing us two. Yes. And that that matters a lot as well. But it's always about the shared experience that they're having. And so then I think that's what heightens as well, every look and gesture and reaction. Yeah. So the filmmaking, you're right. Those insert shots of earlier moments, meaning 12 to 24 years earlier moments are perfectly handled and when to drop them in and how long to hold them, not to push it too hard. And also what I liked about her filmmaking style was the way she moves the camera. I think you said patiently, which is right. It's almost as if the camera is going to slowly track along or even pan until it finds exactly what it is looking for. Mm. And a couple of early examples of that would be when she does announce as a middle schooler, as a young girl in class at school to another girl that her family is leaving. And the camera kind of starts on that conversation and then slowly finds its way without cutting um, to see Hassung sitting there hearing this. And you get the sense this is maybe the first time he's heard it, maybe not, but it's it's really becoming real for him in that moment. And I just like how we don't start with him and overhear it. The camera just slowly moves there. Another shot, and this is later, it's a jump ahead when he's serving in the army and the camera starts on a a bunch of young men sitting, eating their food. I think everyone, almost everyone is eating alone. It's a very despondent, lonely scene. And it starts with a different group of soldiers until it drifts to the left and then finds him. And he's right. there alone. And we even have to find him. We have to find him. We sort him. of as yes. viewers have to pick him out. Yeah, good yeah. point. Because he's not the only person yeah. on the screen. And then it yeah. rests there and lets us watch yeah. him. That Those are just two minor examples, but that's felt kind of like the primary style she employed, which again is thoughtful, contemplative, and and to your point, allowing us to consider, maybe not in that last example, but the classroom one, everyone involved in mm-hmm. this drama. Well, how about just the economy of it too? 12 years later, the first shot we get after that text, I think it says 12 years pass, is this military moment and them all eating, and it lasts maybe 30 seconds. I feel like that's really all we get of him in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's as if that's that's enough. Mm-hmm. Celine Song understands that like, just from getting the, the feeling – of the loneliness of that scene and understanding that he was in the military. Like we are getting some information about him, but we're getting it just through 20 to 30 seconds of really, I think a single shot. And this is something that's in the trailer, this concept that's invoked of, of Inyun. I hope I'm saying somewhat correctly, this idea of fate, people coming together as if they were destined to, and, and they've encountered each other in past lives as the title suggests. But I love how the movie 
doesn't overplay that, doesn't doesn't try to get sort of too mystical with it. And yet watching it, you do feel, I felt the whole time that I I was watching characters, and certainly by by the end of where it comes out, I felt as if I was watching characters who were part of something larger. That that they're they're considering these these important questions about about their identities, not just love and happiness, but but fundamentally who they are as as people and who they who they want to be as people. And where I'm going with this is this is a half baked idea. Again, I haven't had enough time to actually try to come up with an eloquent or maybe logical way of phrasing this, Josh. But I felt by the end that Past Lives is the year's other great multiverse movie. Mm. Despite the fact that it's it's so grounded in everyday life and it's not as if we actually travel to any alternate universes or other realities, but but I felt as if these characters truly were part of this larger continuum, that there might actually be other versions of these three characters interacting with each other, past, present, and future. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. And then he was just this image on my laptop. And now he is a physical person. It's really intense, but I don't think that that's attraction. I think I just missed him a lot. I think I miss Soul. Did he miss you? I think he missed the 12-year-old crybaby he knew a long time ago. You were a crybaby? Yeah. Most of the time, he'd have to just stand there and watch me. When is he leaving again? When you consider the John Bagaro character, her husband, mm-hmm. her eventual husband, which is a significant part. It's not just like, you know, he shows up once and, and yeah, we know who he is and then that's always in our minds. No, he becomes an integral member participant in this story, which speaks to your point, I think, about there's another universe where he mm-hmm. they do not meet. And and she's actually, we learn about that concept in Yun when she is speaking with him and first meets him at a writer's retreat. That's the first time it's introduced yes. into the into the story. So yeah, there are some maybe less Spider-Verse and more everything everywhere all at once vibes going on here with uh, the alternate romances that could have been. Yeah. And, and just connecting to that a little bit, and going back to the clip we played, I also really do like the way Song plays with that idea of narrative framing and that the movie opens on the camera showing these three characters sitting together later in the film, sitting together from across the bar. And we only hear the voices of people. It's our eyes looking through the camera, but people saying, what's their story? Who are they to each other? Mm-hmm. Asking themselves all these things. Well, we, of course, are trying to make sense of that as well as viewers watching that. And we're paying attention to all of the body language and and how they're sitting near each other and who's looking at who and who's smiling. And is that a wistful face? And what does that mean? And then when we return to that scene, it's not as if, at least in my recollection, song completely subverts it and turns it all on its head in some radical way. But I noticed all these these moments where the way I interpreted it as a viewer at the beginning, not knowing the characters and also not actually being able to hear what they're saying. It was completely different, Josh. It was, it was a completely different experience later informed with more knowledge. That whole sequence where the three of them go out to dinner 
and then afterwards hang around for for drinks as well. I will. I'm very eager to watch quite closely on a revisit, and I will be seeing this movie again because it does ultimately work. But in the moment, as you're describing, there are some interesting choices in terms of where the camera is placed, as mm-hmm. you said, who's in it and who's not, and the editing as well. That was a bit jarring, but has to be to a purpose. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm saying just because of the ultimate effect of the sequence, but also knowing how we've discussed, you know, the careful choices made earlier, but it's a very complicated sequence in just the filmmaking, let alone the performances that are going on there. Past Lives is currently out in limited release and it's going to expand to more theaters this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And that's where you can email any comments about the show because that is our show for this week, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to the release of the fifth Indiana Jones movie, Dial of Destiny. We're asking, what is your favorite Harrison Ford performance? And you only have two choices, Indy or Han. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener-supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you'll get our weekly newsletter and the option to choose monthly bonus shows, including one that's right around the corner here. We did an Ask Us Anything episode responding to your questions. In the Film Spotting archive, which you have complete access to, depending on which Film Spotting family member plan you choose, you can find reviews of Wes Anderson's new films going back to 2007's The Darjeeling Limited. You can also find my conversation with Wes Anderson and Jason Schwartzman on episode 182. We've done Sacred Cow conversations about the Royal Tenenbaums, 589, Rushmore, 630. Pretty much every movie except for producer Sam's beloved bottle rocket has been discussed on the show. Though Sam, he he didn't lose any time. He may have only been on the show for a couple of years. He got Bottle Rocket on nine top five lists, <laughs> including number 481. Well, that was probably your top five, actually, Josh. You got in Bottle Rocket on episode 481, top five Wes Anderson scenes. Yeah, and that was in 2014. So he's had a couple movies since. Not sure. Don't recall offhand which scene that was and not sure it would still make the cut, but must have made it at that point filmspottingfamily.com. Please join us there. In wide release, you can see God is a Bullet. A vice detective quits his job to investigate the murder of his wife and the kidnapping of his daughter by a cult. Okay, based on a true story directed by Nick Cassavetes. And you can see No Hard Feelings, Jennifer Lawrence agreeing to date an introverted 19-year-old. In two weeks, we will come back to talk Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and share our favorite Indiana Jones moments. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Josh, enjoy building your opera house in Peru. (laughs) I hope you have a wonderful trip. I'm sure there will be no problems whatsoever. Thanks for listening, everyone. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.